Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Pharmacon, which is the project of Margaret Chardier from New York. A musician who presents herself with such unbelievable intensity. I saw this documentary about John Coltrane where Kamazi Washington refers to listening to Coltrane like staring at the sun. And that's the sensation I get with Pharmacon. Like there's still a lot of nuance and internal conflict and you don't fully understand the emotional content of what you're being presented with but the force with which it hits you tells you at the least that it's something incredibly profound that so much energy and noise is being vacated from this body all at once it's really powerful I saw her perform at Primavera Sound Festival a few years back which is a festival on the beach of Barcelona and it was night time and I was aware that the beach was just behind me as Margaret was performing this compounded noise of loop sheet metal and voice and you forget that you're outside the gravity seems to double suddenly you feel like you're in this very enclosed space so I was really delighted to hear that her new album Devour which is out now on Sacred Bones was recorded live basically she worked with Ben Greenberg of Uniform and they constructed a recording scenario which basically played out like a live performance and it sounds live as well it reminds me of going to local noise shows here in Bournemouth in small rooms that seem totally unstable as soon as the noise ramps up in volume it's like you feel like the walls are going to cave in on you you can feel the resonances bouncing back and hitting you in the face and your torso and everywhere just this pressing inward it's really quite wonderful so devour like i say is out now on sacred bones and obviously you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for links to margaret's picks and more information about her music as well this chat was really special to me we talked about three really fascinating records but in particular it was really nice to speak to someone else about White House a band who were very important to my induction into experimental music that I've had a kind of conflicted relationship with over the years that I've been into them but still hold a very special place within me and sounds like that's very much the same case for Margaret as well and it was so great to be able to talk those experiences through so, enough delay. Here's Pharmacon on Crucial Listening.
Hello, Margaret. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, thanks. Uh, so you've brought three important records to the table. Before we get to talking about those records, I wanted to ask you about your new record, which will be out by the time this is out on Sacred Bones. The record is called Devour. Um, you talk about recording this album live in the studio, which is, as I understand, the first time you've done that live process. Um, yeah. I was listening to an interview with you earlier today, actually, where you, I think it was recorded before you'd even gone in and done the album, and you talked about the fact that there was some cool stuff that you were planning to set up in the studio to do that, but also it would kind of rely on you being on your A-game to to make it all come together. So how did it go? It went really well. I, It was the kind of thing where I, as soon as the process was over, kicked myself for ne- not doing it for the last three records. Right. <laughs> It just seems so fucking obvious now <laughs> to me that it should have just been this way the whole time. You know, I mean, let me put it this way. Before I ever recorded Abandon, the first Sacred Bones record, I'd already been making music for like five years or six years, and I really hadn't had any releases. I think that I've always grappled with, you know, how to, because Pharmacon to me has always been like very much so a live project. And having some sort of like record that was standalone separate from the performance always intimidated me. And I think that I'd, yeah, let it intimidate me in some weird way. And now I've finally found a way to kind of make it all be congruous and make sense. And I just feel like an idiot for not doing it before. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it sounds like you also, I, I I mean, I, I I don't know whether like how early on you knew that, this material was going to be recorded live, but it sounds like you refined it over the course of live performances as well. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Especially the A side. And how informative was that sort of shaping process that you went on as you were playing live shows and kind of, you know, chiseling the material into the shape that you wanted? It's incredibly informative. I mean, that is something that I had done for the past records where usually um, by the time I'm touring on a record, I'm already starting to incorporate material from like new material you know because usually I like to play songs live for an extended period of time before recording them because you really get to understand them in a different way I've watched footage of you performing this new material live and I was curious because obviously you're a performer who you know I've heard the word confrontational come about before which certainly resonated from when I've seen you as well mm-hmm. was was there anything that this new material allowed you to inhabit or or embody within like the live context that perhaps previous material hadn't allowed you to do was there anything new that was enabled to come to the fore this was definitely live time processing um but i think my i don't know my records are always start from something very personal and emotional and try to bring it to a more conceptual place that other people can also relate to and make it more universal. Um, it was really hard to play this material live at first because the events that inspired it were still happening and it was like incredibly raw. And I think that now that I've recorded it, I kind of have a slight degree of separation where, uh, I can view this, you know, the personal impetus for this record as sort of through the guise of this conceptual 
construct, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, but that's something that, that definitely happened with abandoned and bestial burden too, but that to be brutally honest, I don't think that contact fully did. And so it's kind of interesting to be back in that space again. I know that's very vague. No, I'm just no. not <laughs> going personal detail. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. So returning to the fact that the album was recorded live in the studio, I think what's fascinating is reading about your process, but I think what's also wonderful is hearing the record as well and then feeling that live process come through. Um, yes. I know you worked with Ben Greenberg for this one. I mean, what did he bring to the process of recording that album for you? Oh, man. First of all, he was just completely open to doing everything wrong. <laughs> um, because what I wanted to do, what we did was I wanted there to be a really loud PA and a sub in the room that I was performing in hmm. and record all the vocals live as I was doing the electronics and run around the room in the same way that I do live. And what that means is like, so most traditional recording engineers would be mortified at that concept because it means bleed through. It means, oh, if you want to edit this thing, you, you know, you have to take all these, you know, because we had, it's mostly, so there's uh, sound coming from the board, you know, coming from my mixer, but it's mostly room mics and close mics on the PA and, uh, you know, the subwoofers and stuff. So most engineers would have told me and have told me in the past, that's not how you do it. You're, it's not, you know, you're going to get all these unwanted things. And he was like, Oh, cool. But all those unwanted things are what happens live. I get what you're going for. And then pushed it a step further and had all these insane ideas about how to capture like frequencies that aren't necessarily even audible, but physical, Oh, so like cool. putting this hydrophone into a giant tub of water that was sitting on right on top of the sub so that what? it captures all of yeah it captured all of this like you know you listen to it in the mix and you take you listen to it on its own and it sounds like nothing it sounds like you know farting water <laughs> and then you listen to it in the mix and you go oh yeah that sounds great and you take it out and then you suddenly realize what it was doing which is mimicking the physicality of the low end that you get live that you never get on a record and just like little tricks like that little things and just being open-minded i think was the best and you know, it was like closed, like it was just me and him. Um, there was no like, you know, recording assistants or anything, which most engineers do use and, you know, highly appreciate and the assistants appreciate it because they get experience and all that kind of thing. But he was also just very open in terms of like me wanting it to be just very closed and raw and, you know. How long did the recording process take? Uh all of the recording and mixing happened in four days. Wow. Yeah. And was that just every day was jam-packed all about the recording? The first day was really about setting up because we had to figure out, well, first of all, we blew some speakers. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right off the bat that we had to repair. Um, so there was like a bit of that kind of thing going on and then being like, oh, you know, I'm really broke and all of my gear has seen many tours and is tour battered and there was a lot of like oh we have to like we're getting a ground buzz that's like you know 
louder than anything else from this like nineties distortion pedal that you have that's plugged into this like daisy chain that has wires sticking out. <laughs> so we have to go we have to go to guitar center and like rent a pedal because you're too broke to actually buy one that works properly. Little things like that. So the first day was all set up. And then the second day was pretty much like, you know, I would kind of run through um, I had made him demos that I had like recorded at home. So he was familiar with the material already, but then we kind of like went through and got levels and stuff. And then it was just me pacing and kind of freaking out and having a panic attack until I felt that I was in a charged enough state to just go through the set back to back, you know, a bunch of times. And by set, I mean like, you know, the A side or the B side third day was, you know, B side. We ended up re-recording the B side because at first we, thought we wanted to do overdubs and then we realized that doesn't make sense. We just have to do it live. Um, and then that was it. And then there was like a late night, ex- like extra mixing session at another studio. And that was it. Cause you have worked in what sounds like, um, more piecemeal way before. Was there any internal resistance to being like, right, this is the document. This is it that's how it is. Now I'm going to leave it. How was that? The only internal resistance was, you know, there's like little flubs that ended up making it on the record that do happen live. It's very rare that every single thing is played exactly how I want it. And I'm a control freak. So I always want it to be that way, which is, I think why doing it sort of piecemeal in the past seemed attractive was, Oh, if you record every single sound separately from the rest, then you can EQ it and really like hone in and Hmm. make sure it sounds exactly how you want it and record it exactly how you want. But it just comes across as sterile. And so there's all these like points on the record. Like there's one part where my stifled push down Brooklyn accent comes down a little bit (laughs) (laughs) on the one word. And every time I hear it, I'm just like, Oh, it's painful for me, you know, but it's one of those things where like, I, that happens live. That is, that is what the music is. Like that does happen. You know, Mm -hmm. the feedback and stuff is great. Like all the sort of the purposeful and incidental feedback and things like that, that happen live that you normally can't capture recording are great. And every time I hear those, I'm like, you know, feeling good about it. But yeah, there's like little moments where it's just the chaos of, of it being live. But I've come to like embrace it and think that those moments are actually like, that's what makes it special. You know, Yeah. when you hear me like running out of breath at the end of a sentence. And so the last word comes out a little weird. Cause I literally can't breathe. <laughs> when you hear the body being pushed to that extreme, you hear a sound in the background as I drop to the floor with the microphone in my hands, you know, little things like that, that you don't notice it necessarily when you're listening to the record. I do because I have the memory of recording it, but you notice when they're not there. Totally. I think is like, it's the same with like, you know, the hydrophone in the tub of water on top of the sub on its own. It's not something you would notice, but you definitely notice it's not there. Yeah. the alchemy of production, isn't it? It's so wonderful. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned there a little bit about the process of doing vocals and there being sections where you're out of breath. And obviously you're running through these sides one at a time and just plowing on through vocal wise and obviously as you say that's how you do it live but 
being in the recorded context and and doing that i mean i can imagine with previous albums that you could approach each track a little bit more afresh and you know maybe down some soothers and then do it again but what what was it like recording and experiencing that sort of energy decline as you're going through the pieces the thing is that like physical energy doesn't equate to sort of psychic energy right so the worse my body hurts the more my brain is pushing through it and so the more of this other type of energy I have. And I think that so much of the sound of Pharmacon vocals live are that fight between like willpower and mind and body and just sort of the obliteration of (laughs) the body by manipulation of the mind and the will, you know? And I think that when you have time in between takes to, you know, suck on a cough drop or whatever, you're not going to get to that space. And it's actually really interesting because this is the only time that I've recorded an album where I didn't lose my voice in the process. Wow. Even though I was pushing it so much further, but it makes sense if you think about it. Cause like I tour for like six weeks at a time playing shows almost every night that are exactly 30 minutes. Right. Mm. So what the first show my voice always sounds the best. And then if I don't have a day off between the first and second show, sometimes the second show is like when I'm kind of like losing my voice, but then at some point you break it in. And so I think like doing the set that's 30 minutes, like three times, I think both the A side and the B side were like takes two and three respectively or something, even though I might've done like four takes. And that's like, makes a lot of sense to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're kind of building some sort of internal calluses by that point. Exactly, yeah. So I'm loving the record. I think speaking to you about it is just makes me feel like that I want to plunge into it all over again. If people want to check out the record and buy it, which they should definitely do, where's the best place for them to do that? Uh, I mean, Sacred Bones has a website that you can do it immediately. So if you're in the UK... Sacred Bones uses a distributor that goes to like most larger, not like chain record stores necessarily, but like larger independent record stores. I would say if you want the record, I would encourage people to go to a physical store using their bodies (laughs) and go and actually touch it with their fingers and buy it with money and have to talk to somebody to do it. Cause that's part of it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's been something that I've been cherishing more and more, I think, recently. Um, So your important records, Margaret, you've picked out three records that I've been enjoying diving into. One question that I like to put to my guests is how they thought about the term important when they came to choose their selection. So was there a particular slant that you took on that term important in order to come up with the list that you did? Yeah, I think I think the word that you used actually wasn't important. It was something else. Uh, but I took it to mean sort of seminal or integral to, you know, my life or my music or, you know, things that's, that affected me in a way that they're still affecting me, even if I don't necessarily listen to them all the time. Is that crucial, the fact that podcast Crucial, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crucial listening, yeah. Also, these are three records I do return to that I've also been listening to for over 10 years that I 
don't get sick of. So I think that was like one of the criteria for me too. So let's dive in. I'll let you pick whichever one you want to go for first. Uh, if you could give me the name of it and then a bit about why it's important to you as well. Let's start with uh, Fun House by the Stooges. Cool. So yeah. why is this one uh, important to you, Margaret? So basically Iggy Pop is the love of my life. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening to the Stooges since I was literally like in the womb. My parents are punks, you know, they come from like late seventies, early eighties, New York city punk scene. So I was like literally raised on the Stooges and I'm still not sick of this record, even though I've literally been listening to it since I was five years old. Wow. And I would say as far as like lasting influence on what I consider to be like worthwhile and valid, what I connect to Iggy Pop's presence in the Stooges, the way that he uses his voice, the way that he performed, the way that the music functions is still so much a part of my taste in all music, regardless of genre, and also like how I see my music practice. And it makes sense, you know, it's like Funhouse is like, it's like trance music hmm. in a way. It just, it starts immediately and churns you up and then just spits you out at the end. Yeah. The only so-called respite would be maybe like the song Dirt, right? Which is like, because it's slower, yeah. but it still has all of the power of the other songs. And in fact, it's so depressing that it's almost just as if not more violent and immediate. Yeah. But, you know what I mean? Because it's so dark yeah. it just goes like freight train you know what i mean <laughs> the whole record it's amazing and it's so visceral and present like you're right there and it it does feel live it feels like a live set it feels like it was all composed like with the whole structure in mind it's not like okay here's a couple singles a couple hits and then you got you know some like other songs and then we have our like jammy one you know what i mean <laughs> yeah absolutely it's so crazy to hear about you talk about your process as well for your most recent record and the fact that you you know took the decision to not go and record it in this proper isolated way because i was just reading about this record today going through the same process like the first few attempts they had to record it was all like isolated and you know with sound padding and then they were like no sod this we hate it and just did it as a live set like did that was that in your mind at all when you went around devour i don't think it makes sense why i chose this record for for this actually now that you mentioned that it makes total sense to me i don't hmm. think it was like a conscious thing like i want to do this record like funhouse but i will <laughs> say when ben so like something that recording engineers often do when you start to record a record is they say, do you have a reference point mm. do you have an album that we can refer to throughout the process? And I said, the album that I want to refer to, we can't refer to throughout the process because it's not going to sound anything like it, but it's as far as the spirit of animal, it's Funhouse. So yeah, totally. That was like in my mind. That's so cool. Um, you talk about Iggy's presence generally and the fact that you've been listening to this music, you know, since you were five and probably before that. Is there yeah. a, a reason that Funhouse in particular floats to the top of all of Iggy's records? 
it's just something about the texture of the sound. It's something about how cohesive it is as an album to where I feel like other albums, there might be times when I want to listen to this song or that song, but whenever I put on Funhouse, I always put on the entire record. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, like raw power and stuff, right. And like the, the first record are also amazing. And I listen to them all the time, but this one kind of like, again, it has that, I don't know. It just speaks to me in this way that like, it just feels like the spirit animal of my like ethos. You know what I mean? It just is seedy and dark and passionate and immediate. It just rips, honestly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The fact that your parents listened to it as well and, and played it to you, I think is really interesting because I think with myself and anyone that I've spoken to, there's a undulating relationship with your parents' music and a point yeah. for me where I was like, sod this. Like, they need yeah. to get listening to some good stuff for once. And then the inevitable reconciliation with the fact that oh they would just show me good stuff um did you undergo that process i never went away from the stooges so wow. a lot of the other stuff that they like introduced to me you know like i don't know bad brain sex pistols like certain other things i went through a period when i first discovered noise music and experimental and industrial where I was kind of like, oh, you know, I just wasn't really listening to it as much because I had found my thing in my world. But somehow Stooges never seemed outside of that world to me, and it, I just still listened to them. And it was never... There was never any time where I thought, like, oh, that's my parents' music. <laughs> I felt like it's not theirs, it's mine. Oh, that's cool. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. The fact that you are still listening to it as well. I mean, you must have forced out so many memories of listening to this record but i'm wondering is there a particular kind of image or, or, or a memory of listening to this record which protrudes above any other like when you think back to listening to fun house is there a particular particular scenario that you're in there there's a certain mood that i'm i tend to be in when i do listen to it uh which is in need of catharsis pent up or sort of feeling on the edge of something and needing to jump over that ledge. You know what I mean? Mm. And I think it says a lot about my life that this record has continued to, <laughs> that that need is still, <laughs> it probably always will be for the rest of my life. So, um, yeah, I have a lot of memories of just like, you know, going through something and just blasting this and just like doing somersaults and banging myself against walls and floors and, you know, kind of like a solo mosh pit with <laughs> at the concrete wall. So that there's a lot of that, those kind of memories, a lot of memories of being on tour and you've been driving and you've just been listening to so much music, you know, you get sick of like the typical stuff. And then for me, there's always a point on tour where you're in the car and you're just like, it's fun house time, you know? Nice. And that's when you're driving a little faster and it's a little louder and probably on the highway, <laughs> you know? Do these kind of records also act as a sort of anchor point as well when you're out on tour and away from home? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a little it's a little slice of home. Sometimes <laughs> if I've been on tour in Europe too long and I've seen too many academic experimental sets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That I've had my fill. I'll return to the Stooges to wipe the slate clean a little bit. And have you seen Iggy perform live? No, that is... <laughs> wow. 
the craziest thing is that he like so i think the first time he performed in new york since i was like alive i was i don't remember how old i was but i was pretty young and i think i just didn't know about it until afterwards because i didn't you know i don't read music uh magazines i don't go on you know ticketmaster.com to look for shows i was always at a show and someone would hand me a flyer for another show or somebody would just tell me about it or something like that. So I wasn't really aware of like the larger concert circuit mm-hmm. and I just like missed it and I wouldn't have been able to afford, I think I was like 14 and I was like already kind of living on my own, but, and had like a job, but not exactly a place to live. And like, you know, tickets were probably like $60 or something. So it just oh, didn't work out. Yeah. And then the last two times recently I was, I was on tour and I missed it. God damn. I know. I really need to see him. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't really keep pace with him, but, I mean, he's does he got a new album coming out or something? Or just been out? Or am I making that up? No, I don't think you... I mean, I think there there just was one since post-pop depression, no? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, have you, have you kept pace with his stuff? I mean, is there a, a point at yeah. which you kind of diverged or, or are you still kind of sold on what he's doing? I'll say this, like as far as records that I listen to all the time, or as far as like what I think of when I think of the Stooges or like Iggy pop solo, I feel like after sister midnight era was when I kind of dropped off a little bit. However, I will say that like all of his, especially post pop depression was actually like really good. I don't listen to it very often. It's more kind of like poppy than I normally like. He gets kind of bluesy, too, in his solo career at points. Right. But, you know, it's one of those things where I don't care. I think if I was just in the same room with him, even with, like, you know, 3,000 other people or whatever the hell, I don't know how big his shows are, but I think it would just be, like, you know, I was in a physical space with this person who has influenced so much of my life, you know? Totally. It's interesting as well, isn't it? I always find that the bands probably that I resonate with most intently do have a drop-off point because there's a circumstantial pertinence, which means that they just completely envelop my life. And to expect them to keep pace with that with every album they release, that would almost turn creepy. It's like, do they know where I am at right now and know what to release? You know, it's... uh... Well, (laughs) actually, that's like a huge theme, I think, with all three of the album that I chose is this idea of longevity Hmm. and where bands turn off and like what that means. And I think that most of the great bands that have these like long overarching, you know, I hate the term career. So I'll say, you know, musical journey or whatever, which sounds (laughs) worse. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, (laughs) But it's like if you are an artist who's constantly pushing your own boundaries and challenging yourself and challenging your listeners and exploring and experimenting, you're going to do some stuff that doesn't end up the way you wanted or that the way that the people who listen to you because of one thing wanted. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, Stooges were groundbreaking. They started an entire movement of music in America they were experimental. They were like raw as hell for their time when they came out. They inspired a bunch of other bands to do the same. People who are like innovative like that 
aren't going to just keep doing the same thing forever. Right. And if they did, you'd be, you know, the, the kind of artist who just does the same thing forever is typically not the kind of artist that makes such a lasting impression that you listen to it from when you're in the womb until you're on your deathbed. You know what I'm saying? Right, exactly, yeah. It's, it's the flavor of the week that then you kind of forget about and then maybe you revisit five years later and you realize you don't really like it anymore. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think there's almost like a disingenuity that seems to creep in with a relationship with a band like that sometimes. Yeah. And you're like, why are you still into this? But um, Exactly. Do you have a favourite track on Funhouse? I think that's a hard one. <laughs> right now, you know, that's the other thing too, right? Like that changes sure, all the yeah. time, depending on... But I think right now I'm going to say, let's. what about Loose? Nice. Yeah. So let's go to your second record, Margaret, if you could give me the name of it and a little bit about why it's important too. Uh, SPK, Auto De Fe. Yeah. So why did this one make it on the list? This one made it on the list because it was one of the first industrial bands that I ever heard. So I actually got into like noise before I got into industrial, meaning like harsh noise and later power electronics and stuff. And it I kind of worked backwards and then found SPK who really along with like throbbing gristle defined the genre of industrial. Part of the reason that I chose this is because I think coming from like a punk background, this was like a gateway drug for me because it's extremely discordant. It sounds literally industrial as in metallic. Hmm. Um, but there is guitar, but there's no drums, but it feels like the, this is industrial that extends from punk in a way. Yeah. Um, especially like the vocals and the guitar. And then it just devolves into this like bubbling pit of madness. And, <laughs> and those parts are the best. They're even better. They're more, they're not catchy, but they're like, that's where the meat of the matter is. You know what I mean? And I think that the kind of industrial music that I make is more from the SPK trajectory of industrial. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The legacy that they left behind is like sort of the umbrella in which under I operate, you know? Where did you first encounter the record? I think, I don't even know. I think that someone put contact on a mix for me and then i think i like showed it to a friend who was like oh yeah of course here's the whole record kind of thing nice i was super stoked on that um i think it might have been one of the the guys from yellow tears okay that, that got me into it i can't remember it might have been um dom from hospital but there was sort of the time before I found SPK and then the time after I found SPK. <laughs> but I don't remember the time before as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure, yeah. This is a... I'd never heard of SPK before. Um, this was really interesting to discover them. I and mean, it sounds like they've had a pretty interesting trajectory for their career. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So actually this one also, they have, they have kind of a strange story, which is that, um, Graham Ravel, who's kind of like the main guy in SPK, um, along with, uh, what was his name? Neil Hill. Mm-hmm. They, I think, I'm pretty sure Graham Ravel was a nurse at this mental hospital that Neil also worked at. So that's how they met. Um, these two like younger Australian guys working at a mental institution and met up and decided to start making music and roped some other people into it. So like this record that I'm choosing auto de fe is actually basically a compilation. It's the first like organized material of theirs that they ever put out before it was just like, here's a seven inch or a single or a cassette here and there. And it was kind of like, you know, maybe there'd be three in one year and then nothing for two years or whatever it was. It was very sort of all over the place. And so this is almost like um, a sort of document of where they started and what they had done to that point. And then it was sort of hinting at where they would head in the future. And what's interesting is that I don't like what happened after this. And it's almost like a miracle that this album exists, because if it didn't, I don't know if I ever would have found out about them. I don't know, you know. Um, they were only a band from, I think, 78 to when Neil Hill, the second co-founder of SPK, died in, like, I think... Is it 88 or something? I feel like they were not a band for that long. I feel like he died in, like, mid to late 80s. He yeah. committed suicide, actually. Um, and after that, or sort of during that, and then after is when they got more poppy and sort of, like, dancey and Graham Ravel went on actually to, to score films for like Hollywood or whatever. Wow. Yeah. But so it's, I think part of the reason I like this record so much is that it is that it like could have easily not happened. And then there would have been no way for me to connect with this music, but they decided to put this out and then it's kind of like the swan song of SPK. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is so on, on my period of research today this is the kind of impression that i got as well as that i think i watched a video for a later track that they put out and i was kind of had to double take that it was the same band and not just one that shared the same pseudonym because it was you know it wasn't really the same band though it was still Graham revel and it was still spk but they actually like so spk it's part of this German word that I can't remember, some like Marxist oh, literature yeah. they were to or something. But yeah. um it stood for like a bunch of different things, sort of depending on the lineup and what the material was sounding like. Like my favorite one that I can remember is Surgical Penis Clinic. Clinic <laughs> That's it, yeah. <laughs> um and then the one that they chose for like for auto de fe was uh Seppuku, which is like Japanese um, suicide. Um by way of disembowelment. Right. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then later, I think there was like some more like kind of like goofy ones. I can't, that I can't remember because they're on the records that I don't like as much. Um, right. But it's interesting because like on this record, like towards the end of it, right. You still like, this started happening sort of like before Neil committed suicide, that they started incorporating these dancey things. And he actually left the group because of it. If I, understand correctly but this is all also based on this one like punk historian 
who like, I, I didn't, I didn't exist when this was happening. I wasn't even born yet. And this was one of those bands that I think like, again, if it weren't for this record, you kind of had to be there right. in, the moment, in that, like, that scene or that network as it was happening in order to know about it. And if it weren't for this record, like I wouldn't be able to have a connection for this music, except for their later stuff that they got popular and it was more widely distributed. But even at the end of this record, you can hear it start happening. Um, but like, you know, for instance, like metal field or, you know, walking on dead steps, like those songs are like pretty melodic and rhythmically based, but they're still bizarre. Yeah. There's like, it's the kind of thing, like for someone like me who like listens to noise and stuff, I'm like, Oh, those are like, they're more accessible tracks. But if like, if anybody else listened to that, they'd be like, what the hell is happening? And I think <laughs> yeah. It's it more bizarre because it feels like you should be able to hold on to the more like pop sensibilities of it, but you can't because there's all of this crazy shit in the way. Right. So it's like, you know, or like a song, like uh, a heart that breaks. That song is brilliant to me. It reminds me a lot of like cozy Fanny Tootie time to tell, mm. but if like crass did it or something, <laughs> so it's like even cooler somehow it yeah so even even the ones on the on on this like compilation auto de fe that start to hint towards that future i i still like them i mean there's a couple there's two songs on this that i always skip um but yeah it's pretty much perfect other than that and they're the last two songs so i usually just oh cut it off but yeah <laughs> nice and easy um yeah so you mentioned that you came into this record from the direction of liking harsh noise already and obviously there as well you mentioned that there's something quite fraught about the fact that there is this traditional musical coherence coming through as well and coexisting alongside something that's a little bit more abstract did it click with you immediately coming in from a kind of noise direction and encountering this stuff or did it take some time no it absolutely clicked with me um, harsh noise was like a good introduction to experimental music because it was so arresting and grabbing that it fascinated me and it made me dig really deep and start like immediately want to learn more. But what really stuck with me is like the industrial things like SPK. Like I don't necessarily listen to like my harsh wall noise records anymore. You know what I'm saying? But I will still listen <laughs> to SPK. And I think that it had a huge influence on me. Pharmacon has always had rhythmic aspects. It's always had what I would call melodic aspects. I'm sure other people <laughs> maybe wouldn't. Um, but you know what I mean? There's always been some something that could grab the listener in a way that, that they're physically engaged, that it makes their body want to move or to sway in a certain way, or that it hits them physically in the right direction. And like, I think that rhythm is like definitely a way to do that. And I don't think that means that you have to be freaking techno or something. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think that this record and is a, it, there's just like little things like, which I think it's Germanic is the song that like is almost just entirely a squall of feedback. And then there's this like little melodic thing that happens. And when it happens, you're like astonished, <laughs> but if the whole song was that it would be so boring. Right. But something about this echo of music as opposed to noise that is underneath it all 
resonates with me, you know? Yeah. And it, like, yeah, my music is always definitely like rhythmic. There's usually some, sometimes like melodic aspects and it might not always be like a melody, but it might be a, a loop of feedback that creates a melody or maybe the way that I do the vocals, I shout them and I sort of pitch my voice up or down at the last word to create like some kind of melodic structure, even if it's like very, very minimal, you know what I mean? That's always, and I think SPK was like one of the first bands that I heard that really like mastered this like weird line. Is there a favorite track that you have as well on Ort de Fay? Oh, it's really hard to choose. Mm, maybe Slogan, maybe Contact. Nice. I don't know. I can't choose. What do you think? So, of the two? You know uh, what I mean? I think that Slogan's a little, I think Contact is like, it's it rips. But it, maybe Slogan is a little bit more like, there's parts on it that sound just like straight up power electronics and it's rhythmic, but in this way that's like very trans inducing and very not pleasant. Um, contact kind of maybe illustrates this like line that we were just talking about a little better. So I'm going to leave it up to you. <laughs> cool. I can't decide. Nice. All right. I'm going to go with slogan here. Uh. Nice. I like the idea of something being trance-inducing but also uncomfortable to inhabit because I think that's quite a uh, distinct effect. Like, it would feel like that they couldn't coexist. Exactly. One more record here, Margaret. Um, if you could give me the name of it and tell me a bit about why it's important as well. I'm very excited to talk about this one. Yeah. So White House, Birdseed. Yeah. So why is this record important to you? So this record is important to me for a lot of reasons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that it, it, this, this one's like, this, this is a long one to unpack. I could probably talk about this record for like, I don't know, hours, but I don't, you know. We don't want to do that. So <laughs> basically when I started discovering noise and getting into noise, obviously white house is like one of the first spins that when you're getting into noise and power electronics and industrial people say you have to listen to white house, right? Absolutely. The thing about Birdseed was that they've been a band since the early eighties and Birdseed came out, I think in like 2000, it was 2003. Yeah. Yeah. So this record came out like, right before just a couple years before I discovered noise. So when I bought this record and heard this, and then I found out that they had had like, you know, 20 years of being a band <laughs> or whatever before <laughs> this even came out. I think that that made such a lasting impression on me because this record was such a turning point for them also. Mm, yeah. And they really pushed themselves in a completely different direction and it really paid off. And this is again, like, you know, 20 years of being a band and they, they came out with this record. And I think that when I found that out, that was like fascinating to me and immediately was a goal of mine of like, don't get lazy, don't get tired. 
experiment, push yourself. Like this is something that you can dedicate your artistic life to. And I immediately did, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, I also think, I mean, holy crap. Talk about a record that just like goes straight into the meat of the matter. Oh yeah. And doesn't stop and is unrelenting. This is another record that does that completely. Um, also like, you know, if we're, if we're talking about crucial listening and I'm an industrial power electronics artist, like we have to talk about lighthouse, you know, because they created the entire network that all of this operates within now, because you have to remember that when they started, there was no internet, you know, they were putting their address on the back of a record. People had to call them to buy one and then they would ship them and then they would get letters in the mail. They literally did all of the footwork and the groundwork to create an entire genre and an entire network and a, you know, an ethos and a legacy that everyone who does this kind of music now exists beneath or as a branch off or extension of in some way. But also this was like this record lyrically content wise is something that I think a lot of the people who of my generation of noise, like people like, you know, 2005, six, even up until now, a lot of the people who were making power electronics were citing white house as their influence while completely misunderstanding what it was that they were doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so I think that that was like one of the things about this record was, the ly- lyrically, it's like, what keeps you up at night? You know, what disgusts you most about the world around you? And how does it relate to some bleak, distant, obscure, pushed down kernel of yourself that it reflects you? Right. You know, the subject matter reflects you in some way because you are implicated simply by being a human. Um, and finding this dark humor and like how do you how do you relate to it right because the the other thing that's like important is that like white house were coming up in the 80s when serial murders at that time were like unheard of before pretty much you know there was like jack the ripper and like a couple things but in the 80s it was it was an epidemic of serial murder and all of these forms of abuse that they typically that their content revolves around. And I think it's like, it's the fascination about the culture in which they occur, the backgrounds of the people who commit these, how they became that way, these extreme forms of self-expression, you know, and white house were coming up and creating music in a time when this was exploding all over the world. And it's like, what is it about the shift in culture, the zeitgeist that's creating this wave of serial murderers? You know, (laughs) are they becoming inspired by each other? Yeah. Did they just need another human being to cross that boundary in order for them to feel the invitation for them to cross it themselves? It was all of these kind of questions, like to what extent do we all, if, if a human being committed this and we are human, aren't we implicated? What does it mean about, you know, us? 
Totally. Yeah. I think that's something that's always appealed so aesthetically to me within White House is just that juxtaposition of the extremity of what you're hearing and the imagery they're saying, but just also something that feels like a domestic mundanity about it as well. Yeah. It could be an argument in a kitchen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I meant by the dark humor of it, right? Yeah. Sounds like, you know, like a couple fighting in this, like, we've all known that couple that just says like the nasty, we're like, why are you together? You know, it almost sounds like it. Yeah. It could be like an argument in a kitchen, the mundanity of it. Yeah. But what's really being said is so profoundly psychically mind fucking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they, some, they find a way to make it almost humorous at points. The Sotos collage excluded from that. Of course. Yeah. Say. That's the part that like, I can't every once in a while, I will listen to this record completely from start to finish. And I always cry during that part, you know? Yeah. Normally I skip it. I, it, I'm not, I don't often feel in the mindset to listen to that. No, so I will, say, I will say that about this record. Like if people are going to go after this, you know, uh, interview or whatever, and go listen to it, be warned about that part. But, uh, it the album couldn't exist without it at the same time but it's it's strange it's and i think that like that part would be it is overkill it's absolutely overkill yeah totally um, but purposefully and, but it also allows for them to like what oh man is it is it wriggle like an eel where he's like talking about my art i'm gonna make you feel something and it's like <laughs> him like shooting his own horn and it, you know what i mean it's like definitely like partially humorous but it is just as brutal like in that way that humor is often sometimes you can only laugh about the most painful things you know yeah totally a lot of the imagery that they resort to is ridiculous uh yeah. you know and a lot of the wordplay that they're clearly having quite a bit of fun with um, right exactly yeah you mentioned that this is a turning point for them and 100% I mean from what I can hear this was definitely a bridge between like their kind of cruise style stuff and then that latter phase of what they were doing and then also probably I think like what cut hands yes you know William Bennett solo stuff and definitely consumer electronics too yeah um and I think part of that is because most of this record is just the two of them yes with the with the exception of that collage and I think that's part of it too um but yeah, I mean, the thing about this record, right, is like, they're not filling a role, and they never were. They were the creators of this style of music, and they continued to morph it and manipulate it and evolve it. This is a later album of theirs, and it's like, it represents them at a part of their arc where they were still experimenting and managing to piss people off, and especially their fans, because I remember when this first came out, there was a lot of people who were really like bummed out about it or pissed off. And then there was other people like me who were like, no, this is absolutely their best album. So I think if you can be a band for 20 years and make something that creates such a shift and such a rift in the people who even have been listening to your music for 10, 20 years, then yeah, you can definitely still call yourself experimental. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever, I don't know if they ever came over to the States, but did you ever see them live? No, I've never seen 
White House Live. I've seen cut, you know, cut hands. I've seen and played with and played in consumer electronics. Oh, nice. Um, but I've never seen White House. Uh, nice. I, I would love for them to do that. But I think I know knowing them, I think the only way that they would do that is if they wrote new material together, because otherwise it would just be a rehashing of something that's behind them. And I don't think that's either of their styles. No. Which is part of the reason I respect them so much, you know? So it's okay if I never see White House. It's different than Iggy, you know? Seeing them when they did play live, I mean, the kind of gestures that they throw out to the crowd, like almost like cheering postures and, you know, all this business, which brings a strange kind of euphoria to it. That definitely seems like something that they would need to believe, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's part of it that is like, I mean, White House is like more punk than punk, right? Right. It's, trend, it's a lot of it is is confrontational, but it's also just. I mean, I always think of it as like being really mischievous <laughs> above anything else. Like they're they're like imps, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that like yeah, they're like live set like you know, maybe Philip Best is like rubbing his belly with his shirt open, you know, <laughs> and and they're making these kind of like football hooligan gestures towards the crowds and all this kind of stuff <laughs> you know yeah and it's meant to incite it's meant to incite the audience like uh, of course 100 percent. you know yeah but it is like i also think there's this kind of thing where it's like i would imagine that because like you're you you don't sound you sound about my age yeah i'm 29 yeah i'm exactly 29 so I'm imagining it. Yeah. You didn't see them in the eighties or the nineties. You saw them like more recently, right? Like early two thousands or something. I, um, so I never saw them live. Unfortunately, like I was, I think at 17 when they started playing what was probably their last batch of shows. And I, yeah. my, my dad was my chauffeur and gig accomplice at that time. And you didn't want to bring your dad to a white house gig. <laughs> I think he maybe. <laughs> I, well, I, I did ask him. Um, yeah, and I think he maybe he googled them, and then it was a fact. It was at a venue called Slime Light. And he was like, "These aren't going to be my people." Oh, oh no! <laughs> so, you see about Slime Light. That's cool too. Yeah, um, that would have been amazing. But, um, yeah, no, but of course, like, so you're referencing videos of them as, as I am. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But um, it was Birdseed for me that that was the first record that I heard as well, and it was a. Um, a moment of like i think falling out the tail end of very extreme metal and rock music and being like oh this is possible this is a thing that people are presenting yeah um, well also just the fact that they present so much for you to unpack conceptually and that they don't give you the answers i think was something that also yes. like, that is something that like they have always done that i think became a very crucial sort of pillar of especially power electronics but also industrial is that is that it's more than just shock rock it's more than just music and it's more than just noise yes and to unpack that a bit like harsh noise is noise and it is meant to be noise it's not meant to be music industrial is you know music that is experimental and industrial which you know that's a whole other thing to talk about you know, and shock rock is something if if their entire point was, oh, we just wanted to be the loudest band talking about the craziest shit. That's shock rock. But that's not what they do. They 
present these very, very loaded, very complicated bundles of pain and trauma and disgusting humanity for you to unpack. And they don't give you the answers. And I think that that is very much a part of industrial music and especially power electronics, like I said. So I think that that is part of their legacy that they left on the genre for sure is that it's not enough to just be like, I mean, many people thought it was enough, especially in the early two thousands to just have some rumbling noise or some feedback and just scream over it about, you know, killing whores and shit. But like, uh, to me, that is just entirely missing the point. And it's immediately recognizable as being schlock. Yes. Um, that's a question that I was going to ask you actually, because I found as someone who was just getting into noise, I didn't have, I feel like the, the muscles of the vocabulary to make that distinction initially. And there was something about the provocation, which was inherently exciting until I realized who was doing it, you know, a bit like horror films or something. It's like, who's doing this with a sort of, uh, a full comprehension of the material that they're handling and right. who's doing it like they're just, you know, throwing a Frisbee out there, just like we, you know. Um, right. Did- who's, who's, who's living in their mother's basement. Right. <laughs> yes. And who has two brain cells to rub together. And then there's the third category of the person who saw it as an invitation to, uh, you know, then there's, there's some straight up dangerous people. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Uh, and yeah, when you're young, when you're 15, 16, you're just getting into it. I I did not have the compass to immediately suss out uh, who was who. I didn't immediately know who was so welcoming to me because I was a inquiring mind and who was so welcoming to me because I was a 15-year-old girl. Hmm. And who was, you see what I mean? So there's, I didn't have that compass either. And I listened to a lot of schlock. And then I you know, I think it was when I started making noise and I was like, oh, it took me five seconds to figure out how to make this go. (laughs) So that no longer impresses me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I started sort of figuring it out was when I started making it. I think that was the turning point for me, which was, I don't know, a year after I started listening to it, if that, but and even then, I you know, it took me a little bit to parse out. Yeah. Because a lot of these people, right, like, if they're talking to me, if they're talking to a 16, 17-year-old girl who's, you know, intelligent enough to realize that there's these sort of gradations and talking to the person who's making it and they're talking to me, they're going to put on an intellectual air. And then if they're talking to another older white man they're probably going to be like yeah you know (laughs) yes you know what i mean so it's also like there's a bit of that where it was like when i was really into somebody's music i would go on the uh the chondritic sound tronics noise message board and i would send them a private message and be like cool what is so what's up with your stuff why do you do this like also do you still have this release can i be a nerd and ask you one million questions you know what i mean and yeah, and there's like a lot of people who I corresponded with that I look back and I'm like, whew, I am really glad that I never met that person in, <laughs> in the flesh. Right, yeah. Um, and things like that. Dodged a lot of bullets. Didn't dodge some. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, was that part of the process of you kind of bridging that gap between hearing something like like White House and being like, this is a really exciting form of expression to me, and then being like, how... For sure. Yeah. It was litmus test. When I heard something and the lyrics upset me and they shocked me, it, it's the thing you go back to. What is it actually offering? Hmm. Is it just seeking to trigger and traumatize you? Or is it exploring and asking questions and pushing boundaries and experimenting with, because I think a lot of what White House does too, is they, they like to switch roles a lot. So some of the lyrics are very much from the viewpoint of the oppressor. And some of them are from the viewpoint of the oppressed. And some of them are from the viewpoint of the oppressed being so ashamed of themselves and others, you know what I'm saying? Are from the, oppressor being ashamed of themselves and everyone hating themselves and each other. And (laughs) um, they switch roles a lot and stuff. And I think that's like something that it inherently has value and you can tell where, and it becomes this like litmus test for then you hear some other power electronics and they're saying some crazy stuff and you go, okay, but like, what are they offering that white house didn't do? Yeah. It's usually nothing. Right. And occasionally someone has a unique perspective because I think White House was like, like I said, they're coming from this perspective of being young kids, you know, carrying. They told me, William Bennett told me a story one time about they used to specifically choose synthesizers that were small enough to fit into the pockets of their trench coats because every place that they play, they had a fake demo that they would send to be like, can our band play here? Because again, pre internet. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. And then it was White House, and they got kicked out of every single show. So they had to have gear that they could take <laughs> run away with. And I, you know what I mean? Like, hearing that, I'm, and I'm just like, wow. You know, like, that's amazing. Um, oh, so they would, like, give a demo of a, something much more palatable and then rock up and do their yeah. thing. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> you can't get away with stuff like that anymore. It sucks. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, you know, whatever, the internet creates a whole other host of very unique things. But So that's where they're coming from, right? They're coming from serial murders are exploding all around them, you know, economic crises left and right, you know, all of these, you know, new technologies exploding, like, with synthesizers and things that previously it was guitar music was the only thing you could really do unless you were, you know, had room for a synth that took up an entire room in your house and you had hundreds and hundreds of dollars, you know, mm-hmm. this is like consumer grade electronics coming to light the state of the world decaying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were coming from a very specific time and place. I think what makes music special is when people are honest about who they are and where they're coming from. So if you're living in your mom's basement and you've had a very comfortable life and you come from a very safe community and you spent your whole childhood watching MTV and eating Fritos, I don't think it's necessarily fair for you to make power electronics about serial killers, right? Right. Um, But then you have someone like Dream Crusher who is making power electronics about their experience being black and being queer and being, you know, gender variant in this climate that we're in right now 
and that is real. That is harsh as hell. That is a harsh reality to live. And that is like a unique perspective that that individual has, you know, my perspective has a lot to do with, you know, being someone who grew up, especially poor, being a woman, uh, having dealt with a lot of death and tragedy and other things in my life. That's part of my perspective. You know what I mean? And white house is coming from a very specific place, but I think that most good music is personal to the person who's making it. So that's why I don't think you can just get away with just doing what they did. 100%. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You can't recreate that time and place. Yes. I think it's so fascinating to hear you lay that out because it's something that when you experience something that you, you know has an in- inauthenticity about the way that they're treating that material, it is, I mean, as you've said, instantly apparent. And yet I think unpicking that is not always easy to articulate, but... Um, yeah, 100%. I agree with you entirely. Um, so for for me, I think the, the track on this record that really protrudes and t- is to do with the memory of listening to it is, you know, having philosophy on my CD Walkman at night when everyone else had gone to bed and having it on headphones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I also would put myself to sleep with White House. <laughs> I don't know what happened then. There was a, that, that, that time of my life was weird. I could fall asleep to... You know, Merce Bell's Pulse Demon and all sorts. I can't do that at 29 for some reason. I think it was less about falling asleep to it and more about that's your private moment where you know no one's going to bother you because you're supposedly asleep. And so you you can make it through. And you know that, like, listening to this record is something that your parents are probably not going to be stoked on if they heard it. So you're like, if you were like me, you're like under your covers, sort of like listening to on your headphones. You know what I mean? Totally. It's like... It's your private time right before you go to bed. Everyone thinks I'm asleep. I'm going to listen to freaking bird seed or pulse demon and like <laughs> not be disturbed and be able to like be listening to it as loud as i want on my headphones you know yeah i think the night kind of offers that opportunity to you know when you're playing it in the daytime and other people know you're doing it that they can mistake it as like advocacy uh and then during the night it, it can yep. become inquisition instead you know yeah that's why i don't play daytime shows no outdoor shows no daytime shows never wow um, do you have a favorite track on Birdseed? Uh, I think I gotta say Wriggle Like a Fucking Eel. Yeah. I think it's my favorite. Yeah, it's a solid choice. Yeah. Got a lot of um, William Bennett falsetto on that one as well. Oh, I love it. It was also, to be honest, too, like, so after I heard this record, that was part of it, too. A lot of other power electronics, it's like men trying to really sound like big, scary men. Whereas White House had these totally over-the-top, like, ridiculous, like, falsettos. And uh, it made me be like, ooh, I'm a woman and I have this range of voice and I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm a female. I'm going to use my voice however I damn well please. I'm not going to try to sound like a man. I'm going to try to sound like myself, you know? Right. It's such an opportunity, especially when so many of these textures are abrasive you know the instrumental textures to then compound that with a raspy bloke voice is often can often be redundant in some scenarios yeah yeah i mean when he when he hits those oh and they come out of nowhere you've been listening to something that literally sounds like 
a dentist's office, played through a bit crusher, played through a distortion pedal, played through a Marshall stack for like however many minutes and his voice comes in and it's the harshest thing you've heard the whole time. Yeah. That is special. And that's just the human body. That's what I love so much about those vocals. You know what I mean? Yeah. A hundred percent. You don't need any money to do that. You just need intent. You just need to be a bit of a maniac. That's all. <laughs> He's like, I got that down. I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> I got that part. Yeah. Um, what about the albums that came after this one? Uh, did you connect with them too? Racket and Asceticist. Yeah, not as much, to be honest. Fair. I don't know why. Yeah. I actually listened to, I should probably, I think this is going to be my like excuse to start looking back at, at all their records again. It's been mine you, you too. You have to be in a certain mindset, though, too. Let's be real. Oh yeah. So to make it through their whole discography might take, I don't know, two years. Margaret, this has been great. Thank you so much for talking through these important records and also about your new record as well. I've had a lot of fun. And if people want to keep up to speed with what you're doing, uh, is there a best place for them to go online? Uh, I don't use social media at all. Yes, I noticed that. So probably the Sacred Bones website. They usually just have like my tour dates listed. Great. Um, I kind of have been talking about making a website mostly so that I could have a message board attached to it to give people an alternative to social media, but that might be a bit of a process. So short answer, (laughs) refer to sacred bones, please. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, thank you once again. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks boss.